0: Well, last week I spoke on the general principle of submission to authority from 1 Peter chapter 2. And that was a tough pill for many of us to swallow. Submission is never easy. But looking to Jesus as the ultimate example of submission, remember Peter said back there in chapter 2, verse 22, Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And I think at at every point in our lives, that's something that we need to do, is entrust ourselves to the God of heaven and earth. And know that He is the one who judges justly. Uh, even more so, we need to entrust ourselves to God in this whole arena of submission and all that it teaches to us. And last week, we agreed that, that genuine followers of Jesus really need to live surrendered lives to God in every area at home, at, at church, uh, at school. In our relationships with one another, we need to live surrendered. And uh, perhaps a synonym might be submission. Surrender, submission, very similar concepts. So now in the passage that Patty read for us, Peter applies this general principle of submission in a very specific way, 1 Peter 3, one Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And that's a key concept right there, to your own husband. Not to every man, but just to your own husband. Just a couple of weeks ago, I started meeting with a dozen men on Tuesday nights. And we're, we're talking about what it means to be men of valor. We went to the dictionary, and that dictionary defines valor as strength of mind in regard to danger, is that quality which enables a person to encounter danger with firmness. Valor means personal bravery. means courage. It means prowess. A man of valor is a brave man. I believe that our passage today... Is, is a call for Christian women to be women of valor also. It's a call for Christian women to be women of valor, especially as they learn what God says about responding to their husbands, if they have one. It's a clear and compelling call for Christian wives to be women of valor, women who are fearless in their obedience to the Word of God, women who are brave and courageous in the application of Scripture to their own lives. So let's fix our eyes for a few minutes on what I consider one of the most beautiful portraits of womanhood in all of Scripture, right here in 1 Peter chapter 3. And let's begin with verse 5, and a portrait of hope in God. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So the deepest root of Christian womanhood mentioned in this text is hope in God. These holy women hoped in God. A Christian woman does not put her hope in her husband or or, or in getting a husband, She doesn't put her hope in her good looks or her education. Rather, she she puts her hope in the promises of God. She puts her hope in God. So this is a text not only for women who are married or women who are married to men who are disobedient to the word. It's a text for all women to apply to their lives to one degree or another. The woman described here, in 1 Peter chapter 3, is a woman who looks away from the troubles and minis- miseries and obstacles of life that seem to make her future look bleak or f- the future for her and her family. And she focuses instead her attention on the sovereign will of God and his, his promises and his love. She knows her Bible, she knows her doctrine of the sovereignty of God. She knows that God will be with her to strengthen her and help her and encourage her along the way. She knows that her God will never leave her nor forsake her. This, this is the deep, unshakable root of Christian womanhood. That's what needs to be in place first. Women of valor put all of their hope in God while submitting to their husbands. The next thing we see about Christian womanhood after hope in God is the fearlessness that it produces. Verse 5 said that the holy women of old hoped in God. And then verse 6 gives Sarah, who is Abraham's uh, wife, as an example. And then she refers to all other Christian women as her daughters. (laughs) And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You have things in your life that might be frightening? <laughs> Peter says, man, if you, you you fill up your life with this, this hope and, and believe in the promises of God, it will drive fear out of you. It will drive fear out. She doesn't fear the future. The presence of hope... And in the invincible sovereignty of God drives out hope, or to say it more carefully, and more realistically, <laughs> godly women fight the anxiety that rises up in their hearts, because we all experience that, don't we? Things happen, stuff happens. You've seen the the, the bumper sticker. But they wage war on fear. And they welcome the hope that God brings. And they keep believing the promises of God. And that drives out fear. Am I right? Promises. What kind of promises? Promises like Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, woman of valor, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What more do you need? And Joshua one nine. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Be women of valor. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Woo hoo! Thank you, Jesus. These godly. Women, these women of valor, hope in God. They they actually believe the promises of God's word. And because of that, they triumph over fear. And then this leads to the third feature of Peter's portrait of a beautiful woman. A focus on internal adornment rather than external. It's really a portrait of inner beauty. Verse 5 begins, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, right? And then this adornment, of course, refers back to what it says in verses 3 and 4. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You just have to be able to read English to to follow the the flow of the argument here. Verse 3 says, do not let adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty. Don't you love it? You're never going to get old and wrinkled, ladies. This imperishable beauty (laughs) of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very, say it with me, precious. It's very precious in the sight of God. So first of all, let me say quickly, this is not a prohibition against styling your hair or wearing jewelry, right? Because if it was, you would also have to go without clothing, because it's in the same, it's in the same passage, it's in the same verse. So this verse has been abused in the past to say, you can't, you can't fix your hair nice, and you can't wear nice jewelry, because it says in 1 Peter 3, well, then you have to go to clothing, say, well, then you shouldn't wear clothing either. And we're not in favor of that. <laughs> we're definitely not in favor of that. What he means is this. This is what he means. Don't focus your main attention and effort on how you look on the outside. Focus, the, focus even more energy on what you look like on the inside. Focus attention on the beauty that is inside. There is beauty there. It just needs a little adornment on the inside. It just needs a little encouragement. Pay a little attention to the the beauty that's on the inside and bring out that that beauty that's already there. It's there. It just needs encouragement. You just need to stand in front of the internal mirror. There isn't such a thing, but just spend some time in the Word. And let the word beautify your soul and make you an even more beautiful woman than you already are. (coughs) Exert more effort (laughs) and be more concerned with inner beauty than outer beauty. And all of us guys would be quick to say, don't ignore the outer beauty, please. Please don't ignore that. Just spend equal or or greater time on the inside. Okay? Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. Because it's it's quite clear that that's what Peter means. And he gets specific in verse 4. When a woman puts her hope in God, and not her husband, not her looks, not her education, and, and when she overcomes fear by the promises of God, this will have a very profound effect on her heart. It will, give her, it will give her inner tranquility. It will give her a gentle and quiet spirit. So even if there's all kinds of stuff going on, all, and, and, and all the circumstances of work and home and school are crazy, this woman, this woman, can just keep moving forward, pushing on through, because of the hope that she has in the sovereignty of God because she believes the promises, because fear, has been, fear for the future has been driven out of her life, and she's focusing on that inner beauty while looking beautiful on the outside. This is such a beautiful portrait of womanhood. Isn't it, men? This is such a beautiful portrait of women. And some of us are fortunate enough to be married to a woman like this, I'm one of them. So first there's hope in God that leads to fearlessness in the face of whatever she may face and that in turn leads to an inner tranquility and a meekness which makes this woman even more beautiful and even more desirable than ever before. I say to a lot of young men this is the kind of woman that every guy wants to marry. Maybe not date. You know, our standards for dating and our standards for marriage are, are different. Many of us. And that ought not be. But we're products of our culture. And that's why we need to keep teaching and preaching the word of God so that young men, from the time they're, they're this big, by the time, you know, Gavin's age. They're learning. And Benny's age. They're learning how to be men of God and how to, how to think about their sisters in Christ and how to, how to look upon another woman. They're learning from the time they're youngest. And who's going to teach them? Their dads need to teach them. Moms can't teach that thing, that kind of thing. They need their fathers. They need men. Men of valor, they need men of valor to step into their lives and speak into their lives and touch their lives and help them and encourage them to be young men of valor. Oh, don't get me going on that. That's a whole other sermon. In fact, I think that might be next week. (laughs) Just a little foretaste, guys, and you better show up next week because you need next week. You're saying this week, go get them, pastor. Go get them. Go get (laughs) them. Submit, submit, bam. Your turn's coming next week. You better be here. <laughs> One gal who was visiting for the first time last week said, man, I, I'm so entertained. I love all the faces you make when you're preaching. Are you not listening to anything I'm saying? <laughs> Bill. <laughs> Finally, there comes into play a unique kind of submissiveness to her husband. A portrait of submissiveness. And you can understand now why I'm dealing with this last. I really believe that it's the overflow of everything else. If those other things are in place, this is not such a bitter pill to swallow. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband's some translations say be submissive. 1 Peter three five. this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Not many people are afraid of this word submission, but as I've said before, submission is not a four-letter word. In the Christian life, we can't avoid surrender, submission, and its synonyms. It's part and parcel of living for God. It's how we need to live for God. Surrendered, submissive submitting to Him, submitting to one another. Both men and women are called to submit to God. And in God's design for Christian marriage, He says that husbands must love their wives like Christ loved the church, right? That's a sacrificial kind of love. He gave Himself up for her. So husbands are supposed to be giving themselves up for their wives. And wives then, in return, submit to their husbands. And it's this wonderful cycle of... of of unconditional love and unconditional respect. All Christian husbands must love their wives with a sacrificial love, whether their wives are Christians or not. And all Christian wives are to submit to their own husbands whether they are believers or not. And some people just write all of this off as first century cultural leftovers. Could you imagine what what it would be like if we said, well, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls are so old, they're not important to us anymore. Are you kidding me? So, just because this is old teaching, we're going to say it's not applicable? This is in the Bible. (laughs) Just like verse 7, next week, fellas, is in the Bible. You'll get yours. <laughs> Others love to twist this passage and make it say something that it does not. But most of what I've heard is that uh, this is, that was uh, for the first century culture. Our culture today in 2015 is different. We don't live that way anymore. Really. Let's not tinker with God's inspired word, Please. Let's understand it so we can apply it to our lives and, and and bring glory to God by living out the scripture. As as tough as it is sometimes. I think many people despise submission because they don't really understand it. They, they don't understand it. It's been mistaught. And and, and other people despise submission because, because they've seen it abused. So let's quickly review what submission is not. Just going to go through this very quickly. Submission does not mean agreeing with your husband in everything. Okay, you can see that from 1 Peter chapter 3. Because in this particular instance, it's possible that she is a Christian and he is not. She has accepted Christ, he has not. She has one set of ideas about ultimate reality and morality and ethics now, and he has a different set. They, they, In a sense, they march to the beat of different drummers. So submission cannot mean agreeing with every single thing, every single nuance that your husband comes up with, especially if your husband is disobedient to the Word of God, and even more so if he insists on you following him into sin. And you can't obey. You can't submit to that. God doesn't expect you to. Secondly, submission does not mean leaving your brains or leaving your will at the altar of the church that you got married in. In other words, just stop thinking for yourself, woman, I'll do the thinking around here. <laughs> you need to come next week. 1 Peter 3.7 is coming up. It's not the inability or the unwillingness of a Christian wife to think for herself. Here in 1 Peter 3... This woman heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. She thought about it. She considered the ramifications of leaving her husband's religion and and, and turning to Christ. She considered all of that. She thought it through. She apprehended in her heart the beauty of Christ and His gospel and His his, uh, promise of eternal life and hope and joy. And she accepted that. She believed in that. She thought for herself and she acted for herself. And Peter does not tell her to retreat from that commitment to Christ just because her husband is a little uncomfortable with her faith. Submission does not mean that a Christian wife stops thinking for herself. And thirdly, submission does not mean avoiding every effort to change your husband. I know a lot of Christian counselors will say to, to, to a Christian woman who's struggling with her marriage, stop trying to change your husband. Wait, wait a second. The whole point of this text is to tell a wife how to win her husband. Verse 1 says, be subject to your own husbands so that even if in the chance that some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That's a <laughs> He's saying, this is how how you can win your husband over. Live the life. Be beautiful on the inside. Believe in the sovereignty of God. Fill your life with the promises and believe them. Let, Let all of that drive fear out of you. And so if you believe what the Bible says, you must also conclude that submission, paradoxically, is a strategy for changing your husband. And that's on, that's on the podcast now. You, I'm, I'm committed to that. Hopefully that's not the first time you've heard it, but I suspect it might be new information for some of you. Do you remember the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Do you remember that? Great movie, wasn't it? Loved that. In the Greek, it means, you know, he takes a word and says, in the Greek, love means love. And then he sprays Windex on everything. <laughs> Love that movie. It's a great movie. But there's a line in the movie that's really quite funny. Where the one woman says, The man is the head, but the woman is the neck. And she can turn the head any way she wants. <laughs> All the women are going, Yeah! Yeah! Woo! I got my tithe's worth this morning. But seriously, I, I know that there are several women here today who, who's, whose husbands are not living in obedience to the word. I know that. And, um, and you're wondering, how long is it going to take for the neck to turn the head? How long is it going to take, pastor? Your husband may not be a follower of Jesus, Your husband may be a follower of Jesus, but not obedient to the word. And you're wondering, how long is this going to take for this thing to turn around? Well, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. But let me tell you about Tom, Tom Toro. Tom is a young man who was deep in debt, uh, kind of living without purpose, a bit lost in his life. So like a lot of young men in his circumstances, he moved back home, <laughs> to, and moved into his parents' basement, but subsequently fell into a rather dark depression. That lasted for a while, but things started to change when Tom went to a used books sale in his hometown. And there he opened up a, an old cardboard box full of magazines, The New Yorker, many old copies of The New Yorker. And he said, for some strange reason, I was drawn toward them, and I started rifling through them. Something just clicked, and I started drawing again. He was a cartoonist. So he decided to submit some of his cartoons to the magazine, and uh, shortly after his first or second submission, I can't remember, uh, he received a letter, and it was a letter of rejection. Thanks, but no thanks. Not really great news for a guy who's struggling with depression, by the way. But he didn't quit. He kept drawing and he kept sending his cartoons into the New Yorker magazine. And then one day, uh, quite a while after that, he, uh, he went into his office to check his email and there in his email, the, the, he opened his email and, and, and there was the subject line, cartoons sold. So he finally sold a cartoon to the New Yorker magazine. But listen, that was his 610th Submission. 610 times! So ladies, do not despair. I don't know how long that's going to take. Focus on this portrait of womanhood in First Peter chapter 3. Keep trusting God with your husband and let him do the work. Be patient, wait for the Lord. So if that's what submission is not... Then, then what is it? Let's turn it positively. And, and we need to know what submission is because all Christian wives are urged to submit to their own husbands, not to all men, let me make that clear, but to their own husbands as to the Lord. And verses like uh, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3.18 and 1 Peter 3.5, they, they all reflect that. Uh, it's clear that we're talking about all Christian wives, period. Not just... Christian wives who are married to men who are disobedient to the word. But all Christian wives are urged, advised to submit to their own husbands. So please allow me to give you a definition or a word picture of submission that has been really helpful to Patty and me over the years. Uh, and it's in, it comes in the context of the, the larger picture of complementary biblical roles for marriage. And much of this comes, much of this information originally came from Dr. Piper, Dr. John Piper, but I've adapted it, and my version goes something like this. This is the way God meant it to be before there was any sin in the world. In other words, before things went sideways between Adam and Eve. Sinless man, full of love in his tender, strong leadership in relation to woman, and sinless woman, full of love in her joyful, responsive support for her husband's leadership, no belittling from the man, no wife jokes, in other words, guys, no groveling from the woman, two intelligent, humble, God-entranced beings living out in beautiful harmony their unique and different responsibilities. So sin has distorted this purpose at every level. We are not living sinless anymore. And so this beautiful picture of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood was also affected by the fall. But I'm just stupid enough or simple enough to believe that we can recover biblical manhood and biblical womanhood by understanding and applying the Scriptures, the Word of God, to our lives. Even in the year 2015. It is possible. So in the home, when a husband leads like Christ and a wife responds like the bride of Christ, there's harmony and mutuality that is more beautiful and more satisfying than any pattern of marriage that man could put together. Biblical headship for the husband is the divine calling to take the primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. That's biblical headship. Biblical submission for the wife is the divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. So they work together to make that happen. So this is the way of joy. God loves His people, and He loves His glory, and this is the way He wants us to live, I think. And therefore, whenever we follow God's idea of marriage and not our own, we, we are satisfied, and He is glorified. quiet in here (laughs) is it one of those hmm moments hmm what could God do if every Christian husband and every Christian wife really lived lived out the word of God in this regard I mean, wow. And so, I guess today I want to end with this reminder that, that marriage itself is not, it's not mainly about my happiness or your happiness. That's not mainly what marriage is about. Mar- marriage is not, is not mainly about staying in love. Marriage is not mainly about being married to my best friend for the rest of my life. You know, as romantic as that sounds. And and quite honestly, that does play out for a lot of us. But marriage is mainly about keeping a covenant. That's what it's mainly about. It's about keeping a covenant. And the main reason... It's about covenant keeping, is that God has designed the human marriage relationship right from the beginning to reflect the relationship that Jesus has with the church. He's the bridegroom, the church is the bride. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman I should say one man and one woman in which they promise to be a faithful husband and a faithful wife in a new one flesh union as long as they both shall live. That's the Christian definition of marriage. And it's a sad day that you actually have to have that somehow buried in your documents or buried in your in your website in case you get asked to do a marriage or forced to do a marriage that's outside of that definition. But that's the day and age in which we live. we got to be pretty specific about what we believe marriage really is. And and see, this is a depiction. The relationship that I have with my wife is supposed to be a depiction. It's supposed to be a picture. It's supposed to be a representation on earth of what the relationship is between Christ and his bride. Christ and the church. Marriage exists most ultimately to display the covenant-keeping relationship between Jesus and His church. That's that's one of the main purposes of marriage, is to display the covenant-keeping nature of the relationship between Jesus and the church. And that's, that's the reason why the roles of headship and submission are so incredibly important. Because if you sweep submission away for a wife, then you also submit, you, you, you sweep submission and surrender away for every Christian that's part of the church. And that's why it's important. Because it's a picture, it's a copy, it's a representation of the relationship between Jesus and the church. If our marriages are going to tell the truth about Christ and the church, we cannot be indifferent to the meaning of headship and submission. God's purpose for the church. God's purpose for the Christian wife who represents the church is her everlasting joy. And there is joy in living a surrendered life to God and living in submission to your husband, in a biblical sense of submission. Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and Joy in the Holy Spirit. The goal is joy. The experience of genuine joy in marriage is multiplied exponentially when a husband loves his wife like Christ loved the church and when a wife submits to her husband as the church submits to Jesus. So, no rotten eggs, no rotten tomatoes. I'll take that as a a good thing. (laughs) No anonymous letters, please. No bad emails after today. Let's just work this through together as the people of God and trust Him to show us how to live. So let's pray over this together, shall we? And then I'd like to extend an invitation to our women. Let's pray.